This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Our reading today is from Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 12, and that can be found on page 623 of your Pew Bible. Isaiah 64, 1 through 12. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, You came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who waits, who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you and your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities." But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Good morning. Hey, my name is Ricky. I'm one of the pastors here. Will you join me in praying? Father God, I've read this chapter like two dozen times this week over and over. And it struck me this morning, hearing it read one more time. Who among us prays a prayer like this? Who among us wants to pray a prayer like this? Praying that your presence would descend with power, so much so that you bring fire and heat, you clear things out, you boil things, you disrupt, you correct, you reorient, you shake things, you clear things out. Like, am I the only one in this room who like, man, I'm, I'm terrified to pray a prayer like that. And to think that you like, it says like you would do that in a way we wouldn't expect, which is to say, um, would you come down in a way that I don't want you to? 
I, my suspicion is most of us are tempted to pray prayer like this in the midst of you coming down as you're reorienting things, as you're correcting and disrupting and shaking things, God, would you come down and get me out of that? Like, would you get me out of the place where I feel like uncomfortable? Would you get me back to the place where things were going well, back to the place where I felt um, like I was in control, things were going smoothly, things were going fine. Would you rescue me out of disruption? But that's not what your word says. So God, would you this morning, by the power of your word, reorient us under your word to see that this is actually our longing and hope and really our only plea that you would make yourself manifest and present, that you would show yourself to us and that you would have your way. Like we confess, would you make it our confession this morning? that that is what we need, that is what we long for, that is what we hope for. And in there will be, we'll trust you. Like we'll wait on you, we'll trust you. We'll point to you as the satisfaction of our souls in the midst of that. Like, I, like maybe we just even start from the get-go to go, hey, none of us are in that spot right now. So over the next few minutes, would you, by the power of your word, by the um, presence of your spirit, would you help us get there? Would you reorient us around you? I pray in your name, amen. So this prayer of Isaiah starts off, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Starts off with this, oh, this oh. It it isn't so much a, a word as much as it is a groan, this explosion of emotion. How many of your prayers begin with emotion like that, with a groan? How many of your prayers when you come to God have like an emotion and a groan, like an explosion of emotion there, this desperation? It's in these final words from Isaiah. We hear this desperate prayer of likely an old man. See, the next few chapters are gonna be words from God himself. So these are the final words of Isaiah that we're looking at. And he's full of longing. He's battled hard through his life. God told him earlier at the beginning of Isaiah, I'm gonna put a message in you. I'm gonna tell you to go do something. And um, by the way, I'll, I'll go ahead and let you know, it ain't gonna do anything. Like I'm gonna give you a word for my people and it's not gonna be effective. It isn't actually going to take root. It's actually not going to cause repentance. And this old man has been battling threats to his life chaos and uncertainty. And he spent his life preaching God's word. He knows that God's in control. He knows that God acts, that God sees, and that his groan is one then of aligning himself with God's longings. Him aligning himself with what God desires. He desires the results that God longs for and knows that only God can bring those results. Like man plants, man cultivates, but it's God alone who brings the growth. And that's what he's begging here. Here's what he longs for. He longs for the presence of God to come down, to stand forth, for him to show himself to them. It's been decade and decade and year and year. Would you show your might? Would you manifest yourself because I'm not seeing your activity? Like I'm not seeing what I long to see. I'm not seeing the way that you can rescue and save and act for your people. This is a man full of longing. 
And I wonder how many of us come into this room with a sense of longing like that, like a sense of desperation for God to act, a groan that he would actually take action for us, less of a word and more of a sound of desperation, a gut to be somewhere, to accomplish something, to be with someone. This summer, I took a a long road trip with my family, went to a, a number of national parks, and we went to Yosemite. Yosemite is unbelievable. And if you enter from the west side, you go through this tunnel through the mountain. And when you come out the other end, it just smacks you in the face. Like it just smacks you. This Yosemite Valley was unbelievably stunning. To the left is El Capitan, 3,000 feet of granite. You got Sentinel Dome, you have Half Dome, you have this river, you have like three or four different waterfalls standing over, you know, thousands of feet, just awe struck wonderment. It right-sized me, standing there and gawking at this for several hours, just, just looking at it with my family. And I turned to Tracy and told her, we could stand here all day long looking at this. And I would feel like I'm like cheating God, like to stare at this all day wouldn't be enough for me. And it struck me like it wouldn't be enough for me. I could stare at this all day long, all week long, and I'll still be longing for something more than this, something greater than this. Like I rolled back into Kansas City, caught up into something bigger and deeper and more meaningful. Like there's nothing like that here, right? And yet I came back longing and burdened for more of that. Like none of the animals in Yosemite like get that effect. Like they live there, but the bears aren't looking up at El Cap going, pretty amazing, huh? Like the elk aren't walking by the waterfalls going, dude, this is beautiful. Like they'd be just as happy living here in Missouri, right? We were created for something greater, something more deep, something more beautiful. That mountain range, the beautiful sunset, the peaceful lake point us to something more significant. Even that beauty is just a taste of something more significant. We were built, they were built to point us to the presence of God himself, which actually satisfies us. The Bible says that we were created for God himself. The Bible says that we were made for him to stand in his presence, to be caught up in his power and in his glory and in his holiness. All the longing of the world ultimately points us to him. It points us to him. And what happens when you long for more depth and the kind of impact that only God can bring and yet God feels distance? Like what happens when you long for the kind of like depth and impact in your life and kind of movement in your life and God doesn't show up? Or, or more accurately, like our passage puts it, he invites you to wait on him to show up. You see, what most of us tend to do is exactly what the Israelites do all through Isaiah. Rather than wait on God, we take action into our own hands. We, we make things happen on our own timetable, under our own strength. You see, what most of us tend to do is we, we don't have the patience to wait on God. What we've seen over and over is God warned his people to not put their hope in chariots, which is a way to say, Don't put your hope in fighting your own battles, thinking that you can save yourself by your own efforts. But instead, he told them to just wait on him. Wait on me. Just wait on me and I will work for you. We're we're going to see then through this last prayer of Isaiah, we're going to see that we don't have to take action into our own hands. Like Isaiah's prayer to us this morning is actually a promise that if we wait on God, he'll work for us. He will work for you. And in our desperation and longings for God to move, God will work for those 
who wait on him, which is found in verse four of our passage. But we're gonna get there by walking through each of the, the verses before that. So Isaiah's already been in this prayer, reminding himself of all the ways that God has been faithful to him, all the ways that he's been working for his people, but given their present situation, their desperate need, this place where they feel stuck and don't see God's activity, Isaiah bursts into great emotion in verse one. If you've closed your Bibles, open them back up. Isaiah 64, verse one. That's page 623 in your pew Bible. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. So there's this sense that God is not present, that he's distant from them. There's this, there's this sense that God is withholding his manifest presence and power from them right now. And the prayer is a cry for God to stand forth and show himself to them. He, he's desperate for God to rend the heavens and come down. Now, rend is actually a pretty violent word here. Like you've got to see that. Rend is a violent word like ripping clothing or like ripping a kingdom from a king. It's this violent word of saying, God, whatever is separating you from us, rip through the sky and come down. Of course, God doesn't live in the sky. So it's break through whatever is keeping you from us. Break through whatever is keeping you from us. Would you rip through that and make yourself known to us? And this is actually a pretty risky prayer. Like what struck me this week is this is an incredibly risky prayer. Look what happens when God shows up. Verse two, when God rends the heavens and come down, fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil. So I grew up in the middle of Kansas in Salina, Kansas, a, a smaller city. And uh, at a certain time throughout the year or a certain time in the year, uh, they would, like the farmers would burn their crops. And uh, I have no idea why. Like I know nothing about agriculture. I, mean, I grew up in the middle of Kansas. I know nothing about fields or tractors or any, anything like that. But <clears throat> I don't even know what time of year they did this uh, or why they did it. Uh, but I did know that like in a, a week out of the year, you could do like a 360 in the middle of my city and it looks like Armageddon. Like every field around the city is on fire, scorched with fire, smoke plummeting, like going up everywhere. They're clearing out all the fields with fire. And Isaiah says, come like that. Come as a fire that does things. It clears old crops. You clear brushwood. You clear and you clean. You clean things out. You make things come alive. Did you catch that? Like boiling water, come with heat that makes things come alive, he's saying. I'm asking you to show your presence by the effectiveness of your heat for us. This summer, I was reading some Annie Dillard and this like, this like reminded me of a quote that I've read by her. Annie Dillard talking about the way we so casually come into church without thinking of what we're doing. She says, does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we just blissfully evoke? Or as I suspect, no one believe a word of it. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should be wearing, issuing like life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. 
Like, do you believe that? Like, do you believe that? Or are the words of Pentecost just a story that happened a long time ago? Or God descending on Sinai, just a story that you read about that happened a long time ago, but he couldn't possibly do that now. Like when you show up here, do you, do you get a sense that God can do that? That he can break forth, that he can actually come down in power? Verse three, it says, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. God, you came down and you moved before. We remember the awesome things that you've done through the book of Exodus. When you came down on top of Mount Sinai, you came down in a way that no one expected you to. You made us your people and you, um, you our God. You did something that we didn't ask for. It wasn't in our mind. Like we, didn't, like we wouldn't have pursued it if left to our own. You did it. You did it. You made a promise to us And when you came down, your presence was so overwhelming, it was terrifying, and it changed everything. Your presence changed everything about our circumstance. And what would it require for us, like what would it require from us for God, you to do that again? What would would be required of us for God, you to do that again, even now? Would you again exceed our expectations and come down and move again? This is the prayer that Isaiah prays here. Like this is a desperate, like risky prayer that Isaiah prays. And now we come to verse four, where I want to spend the rest of our time. We see in verse four, from of old, no one has heard, no one, or perceived by ear, no eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. This says that God comes offering to work for those who wait for him. He says, there there isn't any God like this. No, No one has heard about him. No eye has seen him. There's no God besides you. That's that's what he's saying here. Man, what a claim. Like what a what a huge claim that this God, his God, is completely unique. How is this God, Yahweh, different from all the other gods who act and work, from all the other gods who perform deeds? Here's how. This God, the God of the Bible, works for his people, not the other way around. This God works for you, not you work for him. Like, how can this be? Maybe you walk in here this morning, perhaps you've been to church your whole life and you've grown up believing, or maybe someone has told you a lie about this God, that this God you have to perform for. Like, like you have to work for him. You have to do things a certain way in order for him to bless you and in order, in order for him to approve of you, in order for him to be kind to you. And here God is saying, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. I'm different from the other gods. I work for you. See, we see this most clearly in Isaiah 46. Will you turn there? That's page 607 in your pew Bible. Isaiah 46, verse one. Baal bows down. Nebo stoops. Now these are Babylonian gods where they're off in exile. These gods bow down, they stoop. Their idols are on beasts and livestock, these things you carry. So they have to be carried around and they're born as burdens. They're, they, they wear us down. We have to carry them. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden. 
but themselves, they themselves go into captivity. See, other gods demand that we work for them in order for them to do something for us, in order for us to get a payback. We have to do something, we have to carry them around, we have to maintain them in order for them to give us a payback. Now, we don't carry statues around on our backs anymore, but we definitely do carry them around. Like, we don't carry them around as physical objects, but we most certainly still carry things around on our backs. It could be your need for control in your life, your pursuit of approval and a performance of your work, your need uh, for, for always having romantic love in your life. How do you know if something's been elevated to a godlike status in your life? Ask yourself this question. What in your life, if it were taken away, if it were challenged, if it were rattled or shaken, would demand that you stabilize it? Like, would put you to work stabilizing it in your life so that it would benefit you? That thing is demanding that you work for it and that, that it can work for you. It's a symbiotic relationship. Take, for instance, comfort. Hey, is there anyone in this room who has been like uncomfortable the last two years for any reason? Anybody? In your workplace, in your kid's school, and that whole thing, uh, in your community groups, having to navigate uh, the whole political atmosphere we're walking through, all the conversations that have been kicked up with race, all the issues with gender, all these different kinds of conversations. Anyone uncomfortable stepping into those spots? How about the whole thing of like, are we meeting indoors, outdoors, masks? Are we getting together? Are we doing so? Like that whole thing. How many people have had their toes stepped on the last two years? How uncomfortable have you been? Am I gonna say the thing? Am I gonna share this? Am I gonna pull back? Am I gonna lean in? Like, what do I do? I mean, like, incredibly uncomfortable, right? What's been shaken and disrupted in that space? What's filled your mind with worry this year? Like, what about the last six months in the life of our church? Where have you been disrupted? Where have you been like bristled? Like, where have you been uncomfortable? And what have you done? Like, what's been going through your mind? What did you do to secure that comfort? What did you say? What did you believe? What did you, who did you move toward? Who did you move away from in order to better stabilize yourself so that that would continue working for you? Did your demand and need for comfort work for you? Did it work for you? Or did you have to get working to maintain it? Did you carry it around on your back? Now here's the alternative. Verse three. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of, I, uh, of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Carried. Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, I will bear, I will carry and will save. Let me repeat again what God says. You've been born by me, I carried you, I will carry you, I've made you, I will bear you, I will carry you, I will save you. Who has seen a God like this who works for those who wait for him? Like he works for you. Do you see your desperate need for him to show up? Do you see why this is your only plea that God would rend the heavens and come down? This is your desperate plea before him. What does it mean then to wait on him, to wait on a God who acts for us like this? What does waiting in that space look like? Hey, I've tried to like clarify, like what does waiting actually mean? 
I think waiting, like a definition that might be helpful is something along the lines of trusting. Like waiting looks like trusting. Waiting looks like looking to him, keeping your eyes on him, pointing to him and giving him glory for, what did he say? Carrying you. Giving him glory for the, being the one who carries you through what you're walking through. So the biggest question for us right now then is, what does it really look like to wait on him? Like if, if it's looking to him, if it's trusting him, like what does that look like with skin on? How do we actually activate that in our lives? What does it mean to wait on the Lord? I think God requires at least three ways for us to wait on him from scripture. My hope is to walk through a few uh, of these uh, through the book of Isaiah to give you examples of what it looks like for us to wait on the Lord. We wait and pray. We'll look at that. We'll wait and rest. And then finally, we wait and act. So we'll walk through each of those in turn. First, we wait and pray. All through Isaiah, we see that Israel is in danger. They're in danger of enemies, the Assyrians and the Babylonians. However, the danger that God sees is not so much the Assyrians and the Babylonians, but this temptation all through Isaiah for them to run to Egypt for help instead of God. We saw in Isaiah 31 very clearly. He says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots, all these other self-salvation strategies, all these other things to try to stabilize you and get saved and get rescued because they are many and the horsemen because they are strong, right? And then he says, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. So the first thing we see that waiting for us looks like before we take a step of action, before you make a decision, before you solve a problem, before you hire someone to take care of this situation, the first thing, the first act that we should be giving ourselves to is praying, is going to God himself. Like how many times have you gotten to the end of your day with all these projects, all these activities, all these decisions you need to make and you get to the end of the day, like am I the only one who ends their day going, oh, I didn't even pray about those things. I just got busy doing things. Like I just got busy moving things forward. I just got busy doing what I thought I should have been doing, but I actually did not ask God to show up in any of that. I didn't ask him for direction in that. Hey, when we do this, we're forgetting who God is. Like we're forgetting who God is to us. In verse eight, Isaiah 64, eight says, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. First, waiting looks like praying because God is our father. He's our father. Hey, when we're talking about a relationship between God and his people, God is fundamentally father. He's what every dad should be. And I know there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of disappointment in a room this size for sure of places where our dads have fallen short. Places where we like, lack relationship with him, lack depth, lack understanding from one another. But, and then even like places of maybe even self-shame where you've failed as a father, but even those places of disappointment and shame point to the fact that you know the value of a father. You know that you want that. You know what a father should be. And Isaiah says, God, you are our father. You've always been perfect father to us. So if God's our father, that completely changes then the way that we read the part about the potter and the pottery, right? It completely changes that. He says that we are the clay and God is our potter, which is to say 
that God is totally and completely in the driver's seat of our life. He is the one who is shaping everything about our lives. We might think that we know what we need to do and how things ought to be shaped in our lives and how things ought to be constructed. But this says that God is in control. He's sovereign. He's the one shaping us to mold us into him, his image. And how many times have you called your dad on the phone asking him for advice and help with something and he offers that piece of like wisdom and insight that you just didn't even know was a category, right? Like, uh, like I didn't even know that thing was a thing I could buy at Home Depot. Um, or man, that's the kind of thing you only know through the knocks of life. Or that's the kind of wisdom that takes a decade to get. You can't, you can't microwave that. And how much more our heavenly father is there when we have needs. And then connect that with the pottery language. Hey, this isn't a God who's just shaping us, who's disinterested. He's at a distant, like, he has relationship with us. He is shaping us and forming us in his image. He isn't molding us with no relationship. He's our father who gets his hands dirty to shape and mold us into his image. If our fathers are willing to help us out with small tasks from Home Depot, how much more your father in your life, your heavenly father wants you to call him. How many times this year, instead of going to your heavenly father, you jumped into action and made a decision. You didn't ask for direction. You do what, you, like you did what was best in your own mind. Your heavenly father stands ready to help you. Hey, before you do a thing, before you discipline your child, before you take that uh, position at work, before you move that project forward, before you work through that issue with your wife, before you do anything at every little occasion in your life, ask God what he would have you do. That's what it looks like to wait on him. God, what would you want me to do here? Help me rely on you in this. I think this is what Paul's getting at when he says, pray consistently, continually. Go to him continually with these things. And once we've waited by talking to our father in prayer, by taking these things to him and asking him what he would have us do and waiting on him there, we don't stop waiting once we get an answer. You see, his answer is always in one of two directions and it's continuing, continuing the wait. He may ask us or tell us that we need to wait and rest. In chapter 30, God said to Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. You hear that? Like God may tell you to sit down and take a break, right? Like maybe some of you guys are hearing that going, golly, man, I wish he'd tell me that. I, I could use a break. I would love to put my feet up. I wish God would tell me to take a break. Sounds great, right? But not for me. Like I can't stand that. Like, I can't stand taking a break. I don't know about you, but like, I don't like standing still. I don't like being quiet. I don't like waiting on God. Like, I know I make lots of mistakes. I know I'm flawed. I know I'm sinful, but I'd rather just move forward and deal with the mistakes as I go and just keep moving. Like, I, I'm fine continuing and dealing with my mistakes and I'm moving forward rather than having to deal with like the quietness and the stillness of waiting on God. I uh, had a sabbatical this summer and I... I mean, this is a bit of a confession. Like I fell into my sabbatical. Like I was exhausted. Um, I don't think that's the best way to step into a sabbatical, but I did. Um, and God met me 
uh, my family and God filled me up during my sabbatical, like re-energized me, filled my tank. I stepped back on staff in, in October with burdens, like desires, hopes, places I wanted to put my hands to, places in our church where we felt stuck, places where we've been fragmented, places where we've been uh, disoriented or fracturing. I wanted to give my attention to those things. I, my, my impulse is I want to fix that. I want to resolve that. I want to be as helpful as I can. I want to step towards as many of these things as I can to help move these things forward. And I started getting busy with that. Except a couple of weeks in, and I was telling Tracy this, I remember standing in our kitchen and telling her, I think God's telling me to sit down and shut up. Um, I think in this season, we do not need me running around trying to resolve and fix and like action mode Ricky. I think what we need is, what God has asked me to do is to sit down and shut up and open my ears and open my eyes to him working. Um, and so I've tried to do that the best I could, except December was the worst month of my life. Uh, it was the most difficult month I've walked through. And um, like things began to feel more fractured and more difficult. And um, as I moved toward sermon prep for my sermon I preached on the 26th, I was like, I'm done waiting. I'm done sitting. Um, there's a lot of people who could use my energy and my pursuit and my help. So I filled my calendar in January. Like I scheduled three nights a week at my home, tons of lunch meetings, tons of breakfast meetings, tons of afternoon meetings. In my, like I filled my calendar with probably some of you guys. Like filled my calendar. And it's like God uh, said, hey, I'm calling you to preach on the 26th. I preached. And then I went home that afternoon and he said, now I'm gonna put you on your back. I've told you to sit down. And that afternoon I got COVID and, um, and not the kind of COVID where like, I was thinking I'll take a week off then I'll get, get after it. Not the kind of COVID where I could like get on the phone and still work from my computer at home for a short time. Like the kind of COVID where like I couldn't breathe. Like I was on an oxygen tank for 25 days straight. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't talk. I couldn't think. Like my, my brain wouldn't, I couldn't, talk to anyone because of my brain for two, two weeks. It was like God said, you need to lay on your back because you're going to get in my way. Um, that's how it felt. It felt like God saying, I'm telling you, I'm showing up, I'm working, I'm doing something and you're going to get in my way. And there's times when you think that you know exactly what to do. Like you have a plan, you're prepared for the moment, you're even excited about stepping in and you get this frustrating news from God himself stand down, like take a break, trust in me and rest. Watch me work for you. And what struck me from this passage this week is what makes waiting and resting while God works so hard for me is the part in verse three where it says, he did things that we did not look for. <laughs> like he's doing things, like we're not asking him to do these things. You know what this means? Like maybe I'm slow here. Maybe this is pretty common sense for some of you guys. But like what this means is that God is working for me. He's doing the work in a way that I wouldn't have. Like if I would have gotten my way, like given over to my impulses and my plan and my energy, it would not have gone down this way. I wouldn't have chosen this. 
But resting in God looks like saying, your way is better than my plan. Your action, your heat brings things and clears things and makes things come alive that any amount of smarts or effort or wit or effort wouldn't have done left to myself. You see, the problem with my impulse is to fix problems is confessed in verse five of our text. Verse five says, behold, you are angry and we have sinned. In our sin, we have become, or we have been a long time and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf in our iniquities, like the wind take us away. There's no one who calls upon your name who arouses himself to take hold of you for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Like this is pretty graphic language for our, uh, for our situation. Graphic language. You see, the problem, of course, is that every one of us has this propensity to just screw things up. Like all of us have this propensity in us to just screw things up. That's what the Bible calls sin. Sin isn't this thing that's keeping you away from doing things that are like indulgences or uh, doing things that you wanna do that God's keeping you from. Sin isn't even just like being misinformed or like stumbling or making mistakes by accident. Sin is this propensity to on purpose screw things up. Like screw up people, screw up things, screw up events, like screw up uh, the moods and promises and relationships that we care about. It's not to say that we're always as bad as we possibly could be, but it is to say that we are totally, totally uh, left untouched by sin. In verse six, six says, the best parts of us, our righteous deeds, the things we could brag about aren't nearly as impressive as they might look. They're like rags that people use to cleanse themselves and purify themselves. Worse, we aren't in as much control as we would think we would be. Like we aren't as, as much in control of ourselves as we would hope to be. Verse six, the end of verse six says that we're blown around to and fro by our sin. You see that? It's like the wind blowing leaves around. That's how we are with our sin. If you ever wondered why you keep falling back into anger and temptation and drinking and uh, uh and all those kinds of things, how you keep sliding back into those things is because there's forces against us and in the world that will not let you release that, will not set you free from that. And maybe the worst part of all of this is that many times we're just not too bothered by it. Like, like verse seven says that we're apathetic to it, apathetic to our situation. We feel, we feel intently about it for a little while and then eventually it fades away and we can go about what we wanted to do to begin with. See, there are times when God will tell you that your good intentions, you're mixed with sin and they're just not going to be good enough. In the midst of that, this time, I want to show you that in the midst of your sin, in your weakness and in your brokenness and even in your strength, with, which is also tattered with sin, I want to prove my sufficiency in this situation. This is why sometimes God will tell you to wait on him by sitting down and doing nothing. Just trust him to work for you. This looks like Israel at the bank of the Red Sea. Oh, I've got a handkerchief. Thank you. <laughs> I guess he's telling me I need to blow my nose. <laughs> I'll do that. Thanks, Jordan. <clears throat> this looks like Israel at the bank of the Red Sea. This is what we see at the bank of the Red Sea when Moses confronted by the Red Sea, God tells him to lift his arms and then something happens that nobody would have expected. 
Moses says to the people of Israel, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you and you will have only to be silent. Sometimes that's the word of the Lord to you, to trust him and just be silent. The third way we wait on God is that he might tell us to get up and go do something right now. Like the third way we wait on God is a call to action, to actually go and do something. And how can this be? Like, how can God both tell us to wait on him and to go do something? The problem is, is because most of us, I suspect, when you think of waiting, like somebody waiting, we picture somebody like on a couch with their feet up watching Netflix doing nothing, right? That's maybe where your mind drifts off to. Well, that's actually not what waiting looks like. There, there's a... There, and then like when we think about that person jumping into action, whether they're disciplining somebody or like their children or going to work or working into the night, now they're not waiting anymore. They're in action. And this isn't the case of what waiting even means. If you can grasp this now and put this into action, what I'm about to unpack, it will literally change your life and the way that you relate to God. We do not stop waiting on God when we begin doing something. Proverbs 21, 31 says, the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. You catch that? Like you're ready for work. You're saddled up to go into battle, but the victory ultimately belongs to God. Yeah, God might say, go and do something, but he doesn't tell you to stop waiting. He doesn't tell you to stop trusting in him. He doesn't tell you to stop relying on him and giving him glory for the victory that he brings you. You may go into battle and the work as hard as you can, and you may work long into the night, but you also acknowledge that the victory belongs to God, not your efforts. This means that whatever you do and whatever you put your hands to, you have a disposition that through all of your work that you are waiting for God to rip through the heavens. Like unless he rips through the heavens, you're doing it in vain. You're doing it in vain. Like to get through that difficult time in your marriage, to actually break through the log jam that you have in your workplace, to actually help your child grow in these particular ways, these places where you feel stuck, these places where God has called you to be, take responsibility, to act. And yet, unless God rips through the heavens, you'll always be spinning your wheels. You'll always be stuck there. And you, when you make ground, you praise him for that because he's the one who is doing the supernatural work that we cannot do. And God may be telling you to work hard here, but remain reliant on him in your work. Even when you're working hard, you are waiting on him with a spirit of expectancy. Man, are you doing that? Like with the work that you put your hands to, you're actually asking and with a, an expectant spirit for God to actually show up, to break things loose in your work, praying that he would rip through the heavens and that his presence would move things forward for his glory. Keep going, keep moving, keep obeying, but keep waiting on him and leave the final results to his hands. Because we know in Psalm 127, it says, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. He stays awake in vain. It's pointless. Hey, continue preparing and training and working and fighting and arguing and being active to what God calls you to do, but do it with a spirit of expectancy that he must show up. He has to descend. He has to descend in order for that to move forward. 
And God promises that if we wait for him, if we go to him in prayer, if we, if we trust him when he calls us to rest, if, he, if, we, if we put our hands to things, but knowing that nothing will happen unless he moves, if we wait on him, he promises that he will work for us. And the most needed work for God to do is for him to come again like for him to show up again, for him to come again, for him to split open the heavens and answer Isaiah's prayer. God does answer this prayer, but it doesn't happen this time with a mountain shaking, an earth splitting event. God splits open the heaven and comes down himself as his son, as Jesus, as this Galilean in a quiet way, just exactly as it should have been, but not in the way that we expected like we would have never written it this way. He came in a way we don't expect to people that don't deserve it. Instead of destroying his enemies with fire and clearing out brushwood, he takes our filthy garments and he cleanses them with his righteousness. He, he brings us close to the presence of God through his blood, which cleanses us from sin. Jesus is the answer to this prayer. Jesus is the one we've been waiting for to descend from heaven on high. He has broken through. He has descended. He has come to us. He, Jesus even said with his own words that he will never leave you or forsake you. He's the one who saves you and shows you the Father and all we have to do is believe. Hey, if that's what you believe this morning, then you are waiting on God. Like if, if that's what you believe, then you, you're waiting on him and we invite you to come and take communion with us because you're a Christian. The way we take communion is by ripping a piece of the bread and dipping it into the cup we have wine in um, the stoneware and juice in the glassware, and we have an allergy-free option over here to my right. Hey, if that's, your, if that's your claim this morning, that you are waiting on, that you have waited on Jesus, you, you know you couldn't earn your salvation, you know you couldn't clean yourself up, you know you couldn't do enough to please God. Instead, you had to wait on Jesus to come all the way to you to save you then we invite you to come and take communion. If that's not your cry this morning, if that's not your belief, if that's not your foundation this morning, we would ask for you to not come and take communion this morning because that's what this meal points to. It points to your life, your sufficiency in Jesus alone, not in your own efforts. But maybe this morning, um, like there's some of you this morning who aren't Christians and that's where you need to be. You need to be asking God, would you, rescue me? Would you, I want to wait on you and have you rescue me and save me this morning. If that's you and you put your hope in Jesus, we invite you to come and take communion. But there's others of you who are waiting in other ways. Maybe this morning you're faced with a decision on the horizon, significant decision or a small decision, something that God is inviting you to step toward and you need to wait on him by going to him in prayer by going to him, like who knows, maybe he'll descend and break something loose, right? We see it over and over and over again that we, we see people through scripture beg God for clarity and he descends on them and gives them clarity of what they should do. Hey, this morning, we would love to pray that prayer with you, that God would make it clear what you should do. We'll have prayer ministers here in the front and at the exits. Come and receive prayer this morning if... Um, if you wanna respond saying, God, I'm waiting for you, would you speak to me this morning? There's others of you who God is inviting this morning to wait on him by resting. 
Maybe this morning God's telling you to sit down and put your feet up. You're all geared up to move something forward, but he's actually inviting you to do something deeper. Actually, from my experience, much more difficult to rest, to trust him with that, to put your hope in him that he will take care of that for you. You don't need to argue your side. You don't need to move that forward. You don't need to somehow try to break that through. He's going to take care of that for you. Hey, if you want discernment there, if you want prayer there as you do that, come and receive prayer this morning as well. And then finally, there's some of you who God's inviting you to take action. Like, would you receive prayer for that this morning as well? And what's stunning to me is oftentimes when God calls us to act, rarely is it what we think we should be doing. Like, you get that? He acted in a way we didn't expect. What happens if God asks you to act in a way that you didn't expect? Like, rarely through Scripture do people, obedience to God in action look like something that's just pretty benign, right? Or pretty, like, common or pretty, like, um, not, not odd. Like, think about, think about the Red Sea, Think about Moses spreading his arms and going, God, what are you going to do? Like, this is ridiculous. Think about Jericho with the people marching out in front, praising God to walls. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Think about Noah building an ark. Like, what is God asking you to do? Oftentimes, it's the foolishness of men. Oftentimes, it's kind of ridiculous. What does faithfulness and obedience look like there? Hey, come forward and get prayer. We would love to encourage you and uh, ask God to be faithful and to give you courage in those spaces too. So however you're responding this morning, let me pray for us and then, uh, then we'll respond. So Father God, would you move in such a way, would you descend this morning and move in such a way that none of us could boast in it. Um, we, we wanna wait on you. We wanna be responsive to you. Would you then make it clear how we move forward? And we won't move unless you call us to. And in the ways we do move, God, would you move in such power and such might and such glory that no one in this room will be able to boast in it. No one. You looked down on your son at his baptism and said, this is the one whom I'm pleased. You broke through the sky and descended on high. And even in Pentecost in Acts 2, you descended in your spirit. So even now, God, you're with us. You're present. Your power and your might and your glory is with us. How much more expectant should we be? Who knows what you might do? God, would you make that the disposition of our hearts? Would you make that the, the, the cry of our hearts, the trust of our hearts, that we might glorify you? I pray that in your name, amen.